Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey gang, Red Hills Rancher here with a special midweek episode of Ranching Reboot. Today's guest shares his farming roots and we talk about his journey from public school music teacher to being a full-time farm school teacher and how through experiencing creation his children are learning about microbiology and nutrition. We talk about how industrial diets have led to a health-compromised society. From Harmony Hill Farms, please welcome Matt Klepfer. Welcome to Ranching Reboot. Tell us about yourself a little bit. Where are you at and... uh... Tell us about your family. Yeah, I'm uh, here in southeast Kansas in Fredonia, and uh, I was originally a government daycare provider. I was a I was a government school teacher, and uh, I kind of uprooted myself. I grew up on a small northeast Kansas family farm, so I have some farming roots uh, in my briefcase, and uh, I saw what industrial food was doing to these kids in the classroom, creating all kinds of chronic disease. They couldn't pay attention. Their blood sugar was all over the place. I mean, they're incredibly physically out of shape. And uh, I, I just felt this huge need. God was speaking down to me. He's like, if you want to make a difference, go be a farmer. And uh, shortly thereafter, about a week after I heard a doctor speak, uh, my wife's in the medical profession and, and she was seeing all kinds of the same things in her clinic. Uh, with patients of varying ages and uh, she's like this all this is all food and I, I was like man this is yeah I we're having uh, stars were aligning anyway so I decided to homeschool our kids start raising our own food and then once we got good at doing that we decided to try and produce a little more and a little more and a little more for people and neighbors and people in the cities and trying to kind of change the culture of our small town to get people to really t- value their health and take control of their health and not just walk mindlessly and aimlessly into the abyss of the pharmaceutical death trap. And uh, that's kind of where we are today. I work with a lot of doctors and families, helping them reclaim their health, talking to them about changing the palate of what they put in front of their kids and working with doctors, talking to them about, you know, the effects of uh, food in the in the body and I mean it would it would blow your mind that doctors know an incredible amount but in their schooling about one sixty fourth of it is spent on nutrition the rest of it's spent on disease management <laughs> yeah it's like it's so, like ha- not even a half a day on not even on nutrition and the rest of like, it is just how to kill stuff right and that's the paradigm we're in so there's a there's a there's a lot of working to do mostly in the side of education I love producing food but I also love teaching people to be passionate about it too. It's, it's an addictive thing for me. So that's where we're at today. And Matt, I think that's kind of why, you know, we're gravitated together and kind of why we're having, you know, I want to do this podcast today because we both do definitely share a passion for teaching and sharing and trying to educate. Um, But before we get into that, so Harmony Hill Farms is kind of an interesting name. How'd you come up with that? Well, we were trying to find ways to incorporate my music background uh, with, 
you know, the farming atmosphere and life here. And uh, we, we had a concert here on the farm last year where my four kids, I got four, four kids, two girls and two boys, eight, seven, five, and four. And each of them play an instrument. And we post music videos online all the time of me singing gospel music with them. And uh, we had a, an event called Hymns on the Hill. We had about 200 people in our backyard. We were up on a big old semi-trailer singing gospel music. And we, we cooked a lot of food and, and just had an incredible time and just kind of created this aura around our farm. People wanted to be on the hill uh, singing and they loved the scenery and they loved having all the animals and the diversity around them. And we were just trying to find a name that would, you know, kind of capture all of that. And Harmony Hill is what one of our, uh, our customers came up with. So we just took it and ran with it. So I like it. It's, it's good. It's nice and catchy and it kind of yeah. fits because you know, you do, you guys do do music. That's pretty yeah. neat. And we are on a massive hill. So it's pretty much straight down from our house in all directions. So, so, your kids, they're, you know, none of them are, are very old. You, know, you said eight, seven, five, and four, correct. And two boys, two girls, and you homeschool. So how does all that fold into, into, in, into food? Let's, let's start unpacking yeah. that. Okay. So <clears throat> this started out when we, my wife and I basically watched the decline of the health on both sides of our family simultaneously. Uh, health in my parents and her parents was compromised, health in her brothers and uh, my brother were, were compromised and we were trying to figure out ways because she was raised in Western medicine where there's uh, a cure that awaits every symptom in a bottle of your choice. And we started kind of going down this rabbit hole together, her and I, of what exactly was going on. And I, it was about the same time I was at a field school and heard Dr. Don Huber's speech. And it just blew me away. I could not believe it was like, how did I not know all this? How is this private information about what, you know, the science of, a, you know, how much genetically modified stuff was in our food system and what was, I'd never even heard of this. And it, I was like, well, I can't unknow everything I just heard. Like I, I was basically in a matter of three hours, put at this massive fork in the road. And it's like, well, well, I can't just continue down the road in the path I was on knowing what I know now. And then there was just several things that were all about month and two months apart that caused us to just come to fork in the road. It's like, well, we can't live this way anymore. We can't live this way anymore. And it just led us down this path of, we basically have to raise our own food now because everything that we thought was, we were told was good of like, breakfast is the most important meal of the day. And these foods you eat at breakfast. Well, the, that's, if you want to do that, you'll sign up for uh, chronic disease and diabetes and cardiovascular disease. So with our kids, we decided that the absolute most important thing was we were going to base our homeschooling curriculum around experiencing creation in such a way that I was going to let my kids dive deep and they were going to have control and run the momentum of our nutrition program in our house. So if, if, you, if you try to take the sauerkraut away from my kids, they're going to come after you because they're absolutely infatuated with it. They know what it does to their body. They brag about it when they, you know, sit down with other kids. And then, you know, the, like the taunting and the, the bullying, like my kids bully other kids to eat broccoli and sauerkraut. Well, let, let, let's hit that rabbit trail for a second. So why do your yeah. kids like sauerkraut? Well, I, I was trying to think of this psychology wise. I was like, okay, how can I get them to really, I can't be the one leading this. I have to make this their idea. It was like a game of inception. You remember that movie where you make it their idea. And so 
I kind of made it. My kids are, are pretty competitive. So we started letting them, they ran the garden. They would plant their own food. We'd be out there. They'd be planting plants in the ground. We planted cabbage. We had a big party at our house called Kraut Fest here a couple of years ago, and it kind of caught on. I taught everybody how to ferment old-fashioned German sauerkraut in the big old vats in your basement. And people were just like, this is so cool. How did we not know how to do this? I gave away sauerkraut to everybody that came. I taught them about what it did to their gut, what it did to their, you know, their body and their mind. And then, you know, my kids, they just kind of caught on. It was infectious. They were motivated. Uh, they loved going to family gatherings and just, you know, their cousins would, would kind of scour at the broccoli or vegetables or carrots or whatever. And my kids would just smoke it down. And, and, uh, you know, it kind of caught on through the family is like, you know, now, now I have a, a niece that comes up to me. She goes, Mr. Matt, I ate all my broccoli. And that's what she loves to brag to me about. And I was like, man, this is, this is a cool thing. And it has really kind of caught on through all of our different households that, you know, health is an important thing because you know what? I love my nieces and nephews and my brother-in-laws and sister-in-laws and my brother and all their family. And it's like, you know what? We're only going to be here as long as we let ourselves to be. And if we just don't make conscious decisions to change what we're doing on a daily basis, as far as choosing not to eat out and making it, yes, it is inconvenient. It is not an easy thing to plan your meals ahead of time. It takes self-discipline. And this is what I spoke to a doctor from California yesterday about. It's like, there's a big difference between reactive medicine and proactive medicine. And we'll talk about that in a little bit. But uh, anyway, with the kids, they basically, each of them has their own enterprise. So my oldest daughter, she raises all the chicken for our farm. She raises Cornish Cross. She raised 800 chickens last season and she sells them. She gets to keep all the money and she knows when she gets to feed our family. Uh, when we sit down at the dinner table, the kids look at her with gratitude and say, Cam, thanks for feeding us today. Wait, wait, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Your eight-year-old daughter raised 800 chickens by herself last year. Is that right? I mean, I, of course. Yeah. I, I mean, I helped her move the jack, chicken tractors, but that was her thing. She was out there every day filling up waters and filling feeders. And she made a nice little chunk of change last season for an eight-year-old. Uh, my next daughter, Kennedy, she raises all the pigs. So when we're doing anything pig related, she's out there with me helping move hot wire or helping me. I mean, the day that we castrated all the male piglets, she was in there holding the scalpel <clears> and squirting iodine on their butt. And she was right on it. And she gets to keep all the money for the pork. And then my son, he does the beef. So he's helping me with beef chores. And then my youngest son, he does the uh, sheep and anything profit wise, they get to keep it. Uh, for me, I really wanted to have things that kept them motivated to think with the farmer's mindset. Down the road, if they decide to stay on the farm, I want them feeling like they have part ownership in this. And that has set us on a track with so much momentum, because I'll tell you what, from a marketing standpoint, kids are incredible <laughs> at selling things. They're I mean, a lot they better. Can you can sell you can sell anything when you're eight years old, when you're 45. Oh, it's a little bit difficult. Absolutely. Like Cam, last weekend, we sold uh, one whole chicken and a dozen eggs for a $20 bill. And man, we were delivering chickens and eggs all day <laughs> Saturday. I mean, it was, it was easy, an easy sell. So anyway, I, I hear some pigs back there. I was going to say, uh, one of my, one of my kids just came in the house and I think they got their pig out of the cage and let him come in. That's, <laughs> That's awesome. so inopportune. 
<laughs> oh, it's just added flavor for sound effects. All right, man. So you mentioned your wife was uh, was in the medical is in the medical profession. What uh, what is your wife? You know, let's talk about that for a minute and how that has led you on this journey of health and nutrition. Yeah, so she went to med school. She was a PA, a physician's assistant. Her and I did our master's degree together at the same time, and uh, she was she was in on this head over heels. She grew up in clinical practice, family practice, small town you know, medicine. Her mom owns a really successful uh, business that takes care of people that are put on home health. So basically a program designed to keep them out of the nursing home, keep them at home. And it's really an awesome thing. Um, And so when when we uh, had kids, we had a really, really rough go with my uh, youngest daughter, Kennedy. She spent a little bit of time in the Children's Mercy Hospital she about didn't make it out of there alive. I mean, it was a very traumatic uh, beginning to life. And we just saw this completely different side to the Western medicine pharmaceutical complex that we're so accustomed to today. And uh, we just kind of slightly kind of started questioning everything that was going on in the grand scheme of, you know, why, why, why are antibiotics always the first go-to thing that uh, doctors go when something's wrong? Even if we know it's antiviral, they still want to go ahead and squirt you with an antibiotic. And why are so many people in the reactive medicine circle, why do they do things a certain way? Well, when we went down the rabbit hole of growing our own food and trying to rely on, you know, mother nature to kind of take us where we wanted to go, it was like, well, you really are forced to choose one way or the other. Like, you know, the difference between a regenerative mindset and industrial mindset. And the same was happening with her in the the field of medicine. And as I was going down this very same journey on the farm, she was doing the same thing with the doctor's office and just really having to make decisions of choose like, oh my gosh, is this really what we want to do? Do we want to be proactive about it? And you know, she ended up uh, leaving family practice to go work with her mother and uh, more of an administrative role uh, with home health. She does an incredible job with it. The stress level is so much lower. Um, she gets to work with with great nurses and great people for a great company. And, you know, at the end of the day, when she comes home, you know, she's home. She, does, she can leave work at work. And when she was doing family practice, it kind of followed her home. And that kind of took a toll on our personal life as as my teaching job did the same thing. So we just, we really wanted to dive into lifestyle design and really take control of what our various professions were doing to us. And for me, that was really hard because I liked teaching music. I was the hero when I went to work. And then now what I do, like, I'm not so much the hero in the role of playing dad every day and playing farmer where I'm more isolated. But uh, thankfully, we get to do interviews and podcasts like this that we can get out and have cool conversations. So I might argue you're having just as much of an effect on the world with your four kids in the homeschooling program you have than anything you're doing in a government classroom. Yeah, I've I've had numerous people <clears throat> speak to that. And uh, when I, I we actually started a homeschool co-op because there were others. I mean, COVID was the best thing that ever happened to the family in decades. I mean, it forced people to talk to people that never would have done so had the world kept doing what it was doing. And I'm so, I mean, don't get me wrong, tons of horrible, bad things happened to people during COVID. But at the same time, I saw the silver lining and I knew that there were things changing and the world was shifting beneath our feet. And this was our time to sink in and just go to war with, you know, the 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 
blindfolded great American dumpster fire of a dream we thought we were trying to attain. <laughs> and nobody was really taking anything for value anymore. And it, it just needed to change. And and then now our homeschool clock, we have 40 kids in a small town that come every Monday and I get to teach them all country gospel bluegrass i got a section full of fiddle players and banjos and it's just the coolest thing you've ever seen man <laughs> <laughs> so you're still a music teacher i mean you... oh i'm oh, muted oh. Oh, <laughs> yeah so you're, you're still teaching music and i think that's really cool yeah so absolutely you know what what were some of the things you saw when you were teaching school you know you talked about it earlier about you know industrial food and and the effect it was having on kids. Um, you know, I think we talked previously about, you know, some of the effects it was having maybe on attention span and energy levels through the day. Kip, do you want to start, uh, start going down that rabbit trail? Yeah. So in the, in the, I'll kind of give people a clue in like when teachers gather for these teacher meetings that we're forced to be at on a weekly basis, we have to have topics of discussion and usually they stem something around, students and what they are or are not doing and sometimes the rabbit hole will include the names of you know parents and how things are at home and trying to understand what the obstacles of this child are so what started to happen is i started to uh, in music i love patterns of recognition and i want to connect dots and relate things so i can remember them better that's how i remember information and i was just trying to i was listening to all these kids some I had in my class some I didn't and I was just thinking I was like okay what's a problem that all these kids have and then I started thinking about it, I was like well I think all of them eat crappy food and yeah I tried to go down the list and think about it so I decided to kind of keep my eye on these kids and look at them and watch them and then I was like okay well how many of these kids are like silently kind of fighting a sort of chronic disease like how many of them have to go to the nurse's office after lunch and take medication and we're talking about 70% of them. I mean, the, the line of kids that you see after lunch that have to go take their afternoon pills and their Dixie cup is insane. You're, you're kidding. No, no. Uh, I remember talk- when I went to school, like if you had to have an aspirin or ibuprofen, it was a big deal. Like, you know, you had to have your parents call in or have a parent's note or something. The medicine cabinet for the school nurse is like, <laughs> I mean, it's this huge bookshelf full of pharmaceuticals. And her job is basically trying to line up what kid with what and and have it all ready here and there. And uh, it was like we get we get notes on our email. So and so didn't have their medicine this morning. So just wash out. He may lash out. It was like, oh, my gosh. OK, well, that poor guy. And, you know, and you'd have sympathy for him. Just knowing that in the absence of this pharmaceutical, this kid lacked the, the basic behavior fundamentals to be able to operate in a normal classroom environment. And. And I was just like, oh, okay. And so for me, I was like, well, okay. I want my kids to be sharp arrows and beacons of light in society. And I was, I was really forced with this decision. I was like, if I stay here in this environment, fighting all the battles for these kids, because I love these kids and I would take arrows for them all day long. And I was like, well, I'm going to end up losing the battle for my own kids at home. And so what I wanted to do is I wanted to come home and, and try my absolute best to, to stay completely uh, engulfed and making my kids very self-disciplined to be able to make them people that could go out into society and help other people fight their battles too. 
And then when it became their turn to raise a family, they had to take priority. Their family had to take priority over everything else because you can't be the one out there slaying battles and then raise dull arrows. You end up being a bigger burden on society if you are great, but you raise shitty kids, (laughs) you know? Yeah. And I think a lot of folk, I think most people never really get that, you know, your job as an adult, like your one, your one job as a parent is to train your replacement, is to train a responsible replacement adult for you that will enter the workforce and be productive. Right. And that, what the, I really valued uh, students in my program that were extremely just self-disciplined. And that was what my very last year I had to take over for the guy that taught the community college because of various legal things that had happened. And I had these two girls in my program that were homeschooled and they were just phenomenal. Needless to say, I ended up really becoming curious about this whole homeschooling thing that led me down the road of like trying to find more homeschool kids and figuring out why these kids just were such a joy to be. I mean, they literally were college age, but they engaged you like a regular adult. They looked you in the eye. They shook your hand. They were there early. They left late. They always asked incredible questions. They were extremely curious. They were motivated. They, you didn't have to tell them what to do. They could walk into the room and go, this needs done. I'm going to do it. You know, and I was like, I want my kids. To, I want me to be like that for crying out loud. And I went and questioned their parents. I was like, how did you do this? This is awesome. They're like, oh, we didn't we didn't use government school. We we did homeschool. I'm like, OK, well, tell me more. You know? and, <laughs> I'm listening. <laughs> yeah, man. I mean, it was just so when I went down the world of music and I start finding all these homeschool musician kids, and I'm just like, oh, my God, these kids are incredible players. And great, you know, humans. I mean, they're just so then I started looking at the model of, okay, what's government school really doing to us? I mean, we're supposed to be the best, most educated Western whatever. I was like, we're a freaking dumpster fire. I can't change this system from within. I got to get out and start my own thing. And that's the way capitalism works is you got to get out, do your own thing. You can't change something from the, you know, if you take a, a recipe and, and you, you take a really good recipe and then you use crappy ingredients. Well, you still just made shitty cookies is what you did. <laughs> and nobody likes shitty cookies. Nobody likes shitty cookies. So that was that. Awesome. So, you know, we've talked about health compromised and, you know, about the food and, and some of the effects that the food has. And, you know, I, I think it's awesome. Your kids are so involved and you mentioned that, you know, you guys do chickens and pigs and beef and sheep. Are you guys raising any vegetables or doing anything else there on the farm? Yeah, we have two garden sites. We have a warm season and cold season garden. And uh, we do a lot of cruciferous, like cabbage, broccoli. Uh, we tried Brussels sprouts and we're not giving up yet. Uh, we did, uh, we can a lot of our own stuff. We do a lot of frozen green beans. My daughter loves uh, cabbage and sausage. And then green beans and bacon. Those are their two uh, vegetables with the meat staples. They absolutely love them. They love bratwurst and sauerkraut. Uh, you know, anything that they get to have that they know that they raised, um, they're all about it. And we filled up uh, two full freezers plus a whole canning cabinet full of vegetables last season. Plus, we had enough for our neighbors and people from church. And uh, it was just a blessing to be able to go walk over to your neighbor's house with a five-gallon bucket full of tomatoes and go, here, man, here you go. Just, <laughs> we have you know, way too many. You need to have some yeah, of these. Yeah, this whole notion of we got to feed the world, well, that's a, that's a darn good 
quality we thought we could have. How about we just start off with feeding us and our neighbor? Yeah, I, I, I totally because agree. We, the The whole myth of feeding the world, we need to, we just need to stop saying that because we can't even feed our neighborhoods. We can't even feed our communities. Um, no. And we, we shouldn't be worried about trying to feed the starving pygmies in New Guinea until we can feed the homeless people, you know, that are in town 10 miles away. Right. And it's just, it's not even in our lexicon. We're, we're basically using the government to do the job that the church used to, you know, it used to be the church's job to be able to feed the widows and the hungry and the sick and the poor and the town. And then, you know, we just dropped the ball as, as, you know, a nation that this was our, our founding of what we were to do. And we, we chose (laughs) <laughs> the dumpster fire of the American dream. Let's get that white picket fence, baby, and a couple dogs. This will be great. And we missed the boat. And, you know, I think it's really hard to look back and see where it went wrong because there's just so many small steps along the way that have pointed us down this direction and are keeping us pinned on this road. There's a lot of inertia, you know, behind, you know, current policy, current lawmakers, legislators. You know, there's just so much inertia behind keeping the system going like it has been. And it's it's yeah. going to be very difficult to fight it. And like you were talking about with the schools, we can't we can't change that from the top down. Right. No, we have to change these things from the bottom up. It has to be a grassroots effort. It has to be the consumers and it has to be the educators and it has to be the children. Yeah, it's you and me and and. I, I tell your listeners, like, you know what, we all have a part to play in this. And just because you look around and you see somebody else, it seems like they're producing more than what we are. We can look at ourselves and compare us with that. Guys, like, we all have a part to play in this. And whether it's so small, like, I don't even care if you're raising an herb in your windowsill. Like, we have to start taking some of this burden on ourselves, no matter how small. You can call yourself a farmer if you have one chicken and one tomato plant. Like, we all fundamentally have to change our role as how we see the world because we've we grew up for thousands of years with the paradigm of scarcity and that all these you know things around us may not be here so we need to be incredibly frugal and then we we got really really gluttonous and snobby in that oh you know what we'll just let the farmers do the work and I'll go get a job in town and all these things there it's infinite availability we started having this paradigm of abundance. We can just print money whenever we want to, and we can just pour enough fertilizer on it, and it'll grow whenever we want it to. And now those things aren't happening anymore. And now it's changing, and we're starting to change back onto that paradigm of, oh, crap. Well, what if that stuff isn't there when I want it to be? What then? And all these people in the cities are like, oh, my gosh. And now we see this massive exodus of the cities because people are starting to go back to, well, what if this paradigm of abundance thing comes back? And here we are. It's a great time to be a farmer is what I'm trying to say. <laughs> I think it's a, always a good time to be a farmer um, or, or in livestock yeah. production. You know, some years have, have been less than ideal. And, you know, the two weeks of polar vortex that everybody here in the Great Plains had to deal with was, I mean, that was obviously no fun at all. Um, so let's circle back for a minute and and talk about how and where you get your animals processed. And let's talk about... Uh, then let's talk about your pathway to market. Cool. Yeah. So um, I I kind of walked this line in the fence of trying to figure out ways to get, you know, sort of my half and whole product 
uh, to the consumer via a really awesome uh, local butchery we have here in town in Fredonia. Uh, B&W Meat Processing, a great family runs out. They're great friends of ours. Uh, their son, Ethan Walker, he owns a farm just like mine, not far down the road, Ian, Ian K. Heritage Farm. And I originally talked with the guy that owns the butchery and just because I, I'm a musician, like I can play classical trumpet etudes all day long. I did not know how to wheel a knife and butcher a pig. And I wanted to know how. Like I, I was so passionate about learning and he kind of helped take me under his wing. He let me come by the butchery a couple of times and just kind of showed me some basic things and, and literally put the knife in my hands and let me do some stuff. I got with another buddy of mine, uh, Zach Bell, uh, up in Chase County and Ethan, and we just decided, Hey, you know what, let's, let's have a pig butchery class because I, I'd done several pigs after that point and, and, you know, cured my own bacon and then my passion became, okay, let's get the butchering happen back in the backyard. So we took a, a small portion of, of, of our animals and we had class uh, here on the farm. We had people from all over the Midwest came and we butchered some pigs in our backyard, showed people how to do it. It was an incredible time. We built in, uh, social networks that branched out. We taught people how to network in their own communities, how to get people together to, you know, basically go back to the intellectual reawaken the intellectual backyard agrarian and uh we do that for our pigs as for our beef you know we don't really have the facility to be able to handle the bigger animals so we 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 only butcher seasonally in the winter otherwise we're just selling half holes through uh the local butcher chickens are an interesting one what we actually did with those since my daughter raised all the chickens is i developed this event called chicken picking and i made it kind of a cool party uh, we had anywhere from eight to 15 people come for chicken pickings. I taught them how to, how to do the chicken. I sent them home with the chicken, uh, showed them how to raise chickens. And basically what it ended up happening was we were butchering 400 chickens and all my, all my help for butchering the chickens was free because they were there learning. And, uh, we packaged up, we did, uh, let's see our first two batches. We did, uh, 200 birds in our first two chicken pickings in just under three hours. That's and pretty good. That's that's, for a, bunch that's of, a lot of birds. For, for a bunch of beginners doing a chicken picking, it was awesome. And we didn't have like great, awesome equipment. I'm just, we had a, 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 a handmade put together chicken plucker and some kill cones made out of uh, trailer park siding. And, you know, we did, we made do with what we had and tried to show people, Hey, you don't have to have a lot of fancy stuff to do this. And that's what, that was the cool part. Cause they went home and raised their own chickens and then they had chicken pickings at their house and it, it just spread like wildfire. Um, as far as sheep, uh, we had a, a group of guys come, we had about 10 people. And what we did with the sheep was we did like a natural halal, grab the animal, make it, you know, basically submit itself and you go uh, sharp knife to the throat and you expel the animal and we butchered it out. And it was a really, that was my first time doing it with a knife as that experience. That was incredibly, uh, it was a rush is what it was. I mean, when, when you expel a pig with a gun, you get jittery, just like, you know, whitetail fever when you're sitting there and like, ah. or the first time I butchered a, a steer for a friend, it was like, man, if I miss, this is going to go bad really fast. <laughs> and yeah, that you don't want that animal's with, one bad day to last any longer than it has to. No, no. And so we, we kind of have this this dual edged fashion of getting people on the farm and using education and and butchery is kind of the vehicle for that. 
of helping people how to have an abundant harvest and edgy, you know, as a source of education. And then we fill uh, customer spots with our local butcher and they do a fantastic job. The customer picks it up there and that's, that's pretty much it. We don't sell any live animals, everything that leaves the farm goes straight to a consumer. So that's, that's awesome. So what, why do we want to eat locally regenerative raised food? Why? I, I guess what I'm getting at is, you know, we've all heard the saying, you are what you eat. So how about you are what your food eats? You want to unpack that? All right. Thanks, man. You threw me a football there. <laughs> uh, so I Hey, just, just trying to keep it lively. Yeah, man. So I did an interview with a doctor from California, Dr. Sabine Hazen, and she is a gastroenterologist. So she studies the microbiome of people, of autistic children, of people with IBS or Crohn's disease, various chronic diseases. She is interested purely in their poop. And she has divin- dove deep. She actually wrote this book. Her and I did a podcast last week called Let's Talk Shit. <laughs> An incredible uh, deep dive uh, into the world of why does it matter if we're eating uh, industrial food and what is it doing to our gut and what happens when our, our gut is compromised. So she started off yesterday's presentation with the world's leading researchers of this profound statement of the goal of medicine is to basically create the environment where there is no more doctor. And the only person on the planet that can put a doctor out of business is a farmer. And this room, I mean, this zoom call full of the world's smartest doctor. If, if there were air being sucked <laughs> out of the room in a zoom call, this would be it. And she went on to say that what, like, because her and I had had this conversation about industrial food and, and what's going on and how much antibiotics we're using. She had done the research where she, uh, looked at the microbiome before and after, you know, a person consumes food of an animal that has had antibiotics and watched the disruption happen in the microbiome of the human. And those antibiotics that we feed the animal, they are not dead. They are still active. They are still changing the role of bacteria in our gut, which is in turn changing our behavior as humans. Like we are basically giant mobile sacs transporting bacteria around. And what we understand about the role of these bacteria so like we're going to use autism because I saw this in, in public school a little bit. What she saw under the microscope when she when she put specimens of, of 1600 samples of autistic children is she noticed that their microbiome, whether it be from uh, IV antibiotics, you know, from an iric, uh, various different. Maybe it was an extremely heavy vaccine schedule that caused that compromised their gut. It wasn't necessarily one thing in particular. Maybe it was a huge trauma. Maybe it was, you know, you don't know what it was in particular. But what we did know was that there was an extremely way less diverse amount of bacteria in their gut. And then she started to pinpoint these certain bacteria. We're talking about 18 to 20 different kinds of bacteria that were like between 200 and 700 percent higher in the guts of these kids. And her, her research several years before this she was the one that did all the research on Clostridium difficile, C. diff. And her job was to try and kill this bacteria. And she threw every antibiotic medicine knows about at this bacteria, and it will not die. But the crazy thing is, Brian, you and I both have that bacteria in our guts right now. And the only way she could change was to change the terrain that the bacteria operated on by changing the levels of everything else around it. So it's also what you and I are seeing in farming. It's like, we could kill these weeds, but why don't we just change the terrain that these weeds are operating on and make it way less easy for them to want to show up? 
and you know you know the story of the two french scientists from the 1860s of we basically chose the mental route because louis pasteur said kill the pathogens let's develop pasteurization instead of beauchamp's idea that was look the pathogens are only there because we made it favorable why don't we just change the terrain I, well i think there's a lot of us that are really starting to wake up to the terrain theory that might be yeah. right and then the pasteurization theory isn't really working that well. Dude, yeah, we're, we're 160 years into this experiment right now. Which is of, how many of, human generations? Oh, gosh. What, six, seven? My great-grandfather was born in 1898. Yeah, seven. My kids, that would have been his dad. I mean, I mean really, I, I would almost argue that it's only been about 60. So we're only about two or three generations in because it was only really after World War II that industrial agriculture really started on the rise. Antibiotic use, you know, really started on the rise. Herbicides, pesticides, all those things came out of the, you know, the World War II, you know, the weapons research from the Germans. And we really didn't even have, you know, industrial agriculture on the scale we do now. Well, until we did today. But no, but what what I'm saying is like back in the 50s, you know, we had this explosion from the late 40s through the 50s you know, of all these commodity crops and all this synthetic fertility coming back. And, you know, that's when we started seeing CAFOs pop up was was kind of in the mid, late 50s. But, you know, it, kind of circling back around, you know, how many generations are we? Two, three, five, six? And what I'm getting at here is how long, how many generations in in people versus cows versus pigs versus chickens does it take for these negative epigenetic effects of diet to show up. Yeah, so uh, two generations ago, what we were noticing at the beginning of chronic disease, we're basically, we're basically at 50% of children have symptoms of chronic disease. Two generations ago, these symptoms were not showing up in people until they were well into their elderly years, 60 plus years old. And then with your and I's parents' generation, it was just showing up like basically when you and I were done with high school, we started seeing rampant amounts of neurological disease in men, uh, mental impairments in women with Alzheimer's. We saw a huge uh, influx of cardiovascular disease. Uh, we saw cancer jumping down another generation. We saw, you know, any, any sort of neurological impairment, basically where our body just quit communicating with itself. There's a huge breakdown in communication. One of the interesting things in cancer research I want to kind of circle back to is when I was talking with Dr. Hazen is, you know, is there, is there, a, is there a relationship between bacteria and cancer? And one of the interesting things she said, because I'm, I'm a huge proponent of like fasting, like denying the body calories to let the body do its natural repair work. And in fact, I've even done experiments with my animals where I will, you know, I know we're humans and we can decide when we do and when we don't eat. And we also have that effect over our animals. It's a, it even has a powerful effect over our animals. So the metabolism of a cancer is it basically can't be killed by the body's natural defense mechanisms anymore because the body has lost control of communicating with this these group of cancer cells. So when you fast for around 18 hours, your body switches from burning glucose into glycogen, which is our stored energy in our liver. And then after that, the body goes into this, this uh phase called apoptosis, basically where it sends out cell markers to start marking cells that are, are kind of promiscuous and, and problematic for the body. It basically culls them out of our cellular network, flushes them out of the body, shuts down their mitochondria, and 
what we were thinking is like, well, what happens if we make cancer patients fast? And what happened is, is the metabolism of these cancer cells, actually, it's, it's like, it's like they leave, you know, they, they basically go off grid and they start their own metabolism of trying to feed themselves and they just metastasize and grow and grow and grow off their own food source. And the only way people were thinking like, we've got to kill the cancer cells. So it's like, no, what if we just figure out how to communicate with them again and connect, reconnect them with the extracellular network via bacteria? Because bacteria have this thing called quorum sensing. And this is the where, part where it gets super nerdy interesting. Uh, but bacteria have I'm a all about super nerdy, so let's let's just dive in. <laughs> so like we'll use we'll use uh you know uh airborne RNA. So like when you and I are in a room or we talk or we sneeze, there is information in that breath of air. You know, when you're in a room and you think you get like a vibe or a gut feeling, like there is actual uh, genetic information called microRNA that is in the air that our senses, when we take in, our body reads those barcodes the same way our cellular network would read a virus, which is basically a floating computer chip in the air. And that microRNA, like when, when you ingest food that was stressed, that lived in a stressful, toxic environment, you know, basically the animal adopted the same sorts of uh, symptoms, just like an autistic child would, you are, your body is reading those barcodes. So basically we, we, we leave people with this understanding is like, we were told the food was energy. Food is not energy. Food is information because we know now that when we th- started thinking of food, we were counting calories. Our stomach doesn't have a freaking clue what a calorie is. It's not using calories and quantifying calories to tell us when we're full. It's quantifying nutrient density. And when it feels like that's why you can eat a whole bag of Doritos and you don't feel full, like because there's gnomes down in your stomach that are bacteria and they're like, shit, we we need all this stuff on the list. We don't have near enough calcium to fix his knee that he fell down on yesterday. Keep it coming, man. Keep the hungry light on. You just never feel satisfied. I can I can destroy an entire medium pizza from Pizza Hut. (laughs) I can go to like, you know, a restaurant, eat, you know, big, big, nice half pound or two thirds pound burger. But a good grass-fed burger that, you know, a good grass-finished burger um, kind of almost struggle to f- get through a quarter pound of that because it yeah. has all the nutrients in it. Your body just doesn't need it. And the gnomes down on the belly say, hey, got enough. Quit. We're Anything good. else, we just yeah. got to process out the back end later. So shut it yeah. down. So this this mindset of, of you know, you're in the, you're in the cattle production industry and we're trying to produce these animals that are just free. The frame of the animal just gets bigger and bigger the longer we do this. And we, we have the, the mindset of uh, if the little is good, then more must be better. Well, more is not better. It's just more. So if we got more beef on the frame of the animal, is that better? Well, no, because the nutrient density of that animal is compromised because there's, there's more land space to try and pump, uh, amino acid profiles and micronutrients into than what there was if it was a a 900 pound animal versus a 1400 pound animal you know so and and the other uh, conversation we have i I made a video about this yesterday of, of like okay we can we can get the animal so much bigger so much faster by pumping it grains which have the root structures of annuals which only go so far down into the ground and they're not absorbing all of these omega-3 fatty acids and and not driving the carbon pump yeah and you know, well, it gets bigger faster and that's better. I'm like, well, not necessarily. What if you only needed to eat half as much to feel full? 
And then your body didn't have to process all this extra stuff. We weren't overworking our pancreas. We weren't overworking our colon. And now we don't have, you know, a tired digestive system to process all this extra food just to gain the same amount of nutrients. And we're getting fatter in the process because yes, we're storing all that extra energy trying to process all this extra food. What if we just made food way more dense? What if, you know, I have a picture of my great grandfather and it was from the thirties. He had to be in his, his sixties. He was standing there. He had a pair of big Smith overalls on and rolled up denim shirt and his shoulders were like, he looked like Arnold Schwarzenegger. I mean, this dude was ripped. And I was like, dad, how did great grandpa just get to be that strong and ripped? He didn't have access to, you know, all the, I, I was a GNC junkie. I studied, you know, a lot of, uh, I was going to say, Grandpa stuff. got ripped by going to GNC and, you know, getting those high soy supplements and going to the gym and working out all the time and, you know, yeah. and eating that crap in a bottle, right? Yeah. Grandpa got ripped by eating only what came off of his farm and by swinging a hammer a little bit every day. <laughs> That's how Grandpa got ripped. And it wasn't by overworking himself. Like, Grandpa lived to be a ripe old age of 97 years old and still had a functional mind and a functional body. He was just you know, he died like an elephant in the graveyard. It's like, I'm gone. And the lights went out. I was like, I watched my great grandmother at 103 years old. She did the same thing. My other great grandma, they were both incredible gardeners. I want to be, I want to play the longevity game. I don't want to play the sprinters game. I want to be somebody that can raise my great grandchildren and teach them the wisdom that I acquired from my great grandparents because it almost skipped over me. And I'm so thankful it didn't. And I want to be able to pass it on. And I can't do it if I'm dead. Good reason to stay alive. <laughs> Cheers, my brother. Yeah. <laughs> so we've, we talked about antibiotics and, you know, the effect that antibiotics have. Uh, I guess we, we got into it a little bit about, you know, when you eat meat that's been treated with antibiotics, even if you're, you know, a year or two down the line past the withdrawal period of that medicine, that it can still have an effect on your gut microbiome. Yeah. So intermuscular or even with, you know, my cow, I've, I've traveled down this road of treating mastitis. And where I originally started was the only thing that I knew how was grab a tube of amoxicillin and jam it up her teeth and squirt it up in there and kill that bacteria that was raising havoc, creating this mastitis. And I was like, this is not like you and I would think this is not sustainable. I don't want to keep, I want to figure out because I, I, I took it upon myself. I'm like, I'm well, why does the cow problem. have mastitis in the first place? Let's, let's right. go worry about that. Right. So, you know, the first of which was, okay, she's not laying down on clean pasture. There's the first problem. You know, you got her in a lot. She's around soil borne bacteria all the time. Uh, let's change the environment. Got her after I milked her, I wouldn't uh, put her in the same path. I'd kick her right out, right out back to grass instead of keeping her in the holding pen. And that helped a little bit. Every once in a while when she'd get stressed, uh, it would flare up again. So then I was like, okay, well, what if I change the diversity of the bacteria in her rumen that deals with her immune system? So I started studying and found this certain strain of lactobacillus bacteria. Uh, I started putting that in her uh, supplement ration. And then lo and behold, two years later, I haven't had a single case of mastitis just with the use of different kinds of bacteria to keep that the, the certain bacteria in check, just like what Dr. Hazen discussed with the, the microbiome of autistic children. The same turned out to be true. Now, I'm not saying like 
every once in a while, we're going to get ourselves into a situation and we need a bailout. But we always have to understand when we're using antibiotics, if if we have to do that, we have to go, I caused. And now I have to reap this because you know what? We're also responsible with re-inoculating the rumens of these grazing animals because I'll tell you what, she she discussed the, the effects of antibiotics and, and depression and it's real. Like if, if you take a course of antibiotics and then you repeat it, your chances of having long-term chronic depression goes up by 80%. The role wow. that these bacteria, the role that these bacteria are playing with our, our cognitive impairments is <clears throat> absolutely mind blowing. What we're starting to understand about the role of the connection between the gut and the brain. Like it is profound and it's not to be taken lightly. Like it's not where we were just prescribing Z-Packs and amoxicillin and Bactrim and all these others, like we can't just keep doing that because we're, look at how many kids have severe amounts of depression today. And it's not a few kids. It's a lot of kids. Well, and then, you know, okay, so you give them antibiotics to, because they have an earache. And right. then a That's year later, they get another earache. So you give them antibiotics again. Their gut microbiome is, you know, totally depopulated. Then they start suffering from depression. Then they got to go back to the doctor. Now, now, next thing you know, you're on an SSRI, which, you know, those have other effects on the brain and probably have some similar effects on the gut microbiome. Make it between the, the uh, things that we're compromising in the gut with the SSRI meds, like it makes it virtually impossible for a male to naturally regulate his testosterone, estrogen, progesterone, hormone load. And basically what we see now is, the, you know, the protrusion of the, the, ma- the male mammaries and, and the, the man gut, okay? That's, that's a hormone problem caused by lack of diversity of bacteria that can't digest. And then you had glucose intolerance or insulin resistance. And then it caused a, basically without the, the hormones and the bacteria, you are always going to store energy in your gut. Always. That's you fix those two things. And literally the weight jumps away. It wants to get off. you. If if you got testosterone and you got diverse gut, you're going to get ripped like great grandpa. You know, I, I think there's some truth to that. And I'm not, you know, I'm not, when I was really young, my mom always taught me, she tried to teach me to eat good. I ate like crap. Sorry, mom. But you know, she did teach me the importance of things. And I remember I remember going to school, I grew up eating wheat bread and I remember going to school, you know, I'd get, you know, a turkey and cheese sandwich or whatever. And I'd go to school and my friends were eating peanut butter and jelly on white bread. And for a while, I, I didn't even know what it tasted like. I just, you know, okay, bread's bread. But then there was one time I, you know, somebody wanted to trade sandwiches with me. So I tried white bread at somebody's house and it was just like, oh my God, this is so awesome. And it tasted so good. So I came home and I was asking mom, like, why don't we have white bread? And she said, because we eat whole wheat bread. Okay, I get that. Why? Well, we eat whole wheat bread because it still has the germ on it, and that's where all the good stuff is. That's where all the, that's where all the nutrients are. And white bread, the flour's bleached. They de-germ it. They take all that stuff out, and they bleach the flour. So all that's there is just, you know, it's just the flour, and it doesn't have as much well, nutrients in it. And then... And then I remember a few years, like then just a couple years later, then they start enriching all the white, all the bleached white flour. So now you can't even like buy non-enriched, you know, bleached white flour because it has to be enriched because after it's bleached and milled, it's just totally nutrient devoid. Yeah. Trying to add the nutrients in after the fact 
is not helping the problem. Like when we're, when we're doing the things like, you know, my friends that are vegan, you know, they have deficiencies in vitamin A, vitamin B12, various other things that their diet is not able to offer in the absence of not having meat protein. Okay. So like they're supplementing after the fact with these, you know, deficiencies that they have. And I'm like, well, okay. I know you're trying to virtue signal and be on the path of nutritional righteousness. Okay. Why? And they all have their various reasons for doing it. But if, if right now in, in the, in the, the cattle industry, we're noticing that, well, the reason why grass finished animals are raising such a higher premium is because, because people have figured out that they want higher amounts of omega-3 fatty acids and omega-6s because our body will always metabolize omega-6s before threes. And if the ratio is too high, it may never get to the best part of the fatty acid. It'll just flush them out the back end. And so now what they're trying to do is raise grain finished animal and then sprinkle in higher amounts of <laughs> omega-3s after it's already ground in hamburgers. Like, okay, time out. Stop. <laughs> Why don't we just change the management of how we're raising it? Well, that would be, that would be too hard. It's like, okay, well, I'm just going to do it my way then because trying to persuade somebody else to do it, uh, that way is it, we're wasting our time essentially we just we got to do our thing and wait for people to to become curious because if we spend way too much time in our circle of influence rather than our, our circle of control the things that we can actually change we're gonna we're gonna waste all our resources and i'll tell you it's like kind of why i chose to homeschool it's like well i can control my own kids but i can't control your kids because they're literally on your watch 23 of the other hours and I only get them for once. So I literally can't fight this battle. But are, I, I'd argue that they're not on anybody's watch for most of the day, that a lot of parents oh. have abdicated the responsibility for raising their children to the public school system, you know, or after school activities. Yeah. Most of the, most of the parents that are raising kids today, with the exception of your and I's generation starting to change the tide a little bit is that, okay, maybe it's not somebody else's burden to be bared of raising my children. Maybe it's supposed to be my burden. And maybe the burden of raising the food that I consume is not somebody else's burden. It's my burden to bear. And maybe if I can produce a little bit more than I can consume, I would feel productive in society. And you get all these kids in the, the inner cities that, you know, your, your classic liberal city child, they don't have any true sense of purpose on this planet. They're just waiting to be told what to do. And when you take away that sense of purpose, that's where you, you get a very radicalized mental agenda and your, your, your disgust sensitivity towards other people that take away what you're trying to do. Man, that's how Nazi Germany happened. That's how Mao Zedong happened. That's how communist Russia happened. Like these, this, I don't know, this demonization and dehumanization towards the, the straight white farmer that's happening right now. Like we're the most, you and I are like two of the biggest terrorists on the planet in the eyes of the, the rest of the Western world. Like, yeah, the horrible thing is, though, is we're one of the smallest minorities in the country. Like, know. you know, you, you just take off the color part of it, okay? Like farmers and ranchers, people that grow your food, 2%. We're 2% of the population. You know, we'll talk about taxation without representation. Let's talk about, you know, minorities. You know, we're 2% of the population here. Not to mention the, the percent of the population that would bend over backwards to come help you out if you were in trouble. It Exactly. You know, you, you mentioned that and it's wildfire season. You know, yeah. three years ago, four years ago and five years ago, we had horrific wildfires. 
you know, yeah, barely saw anything on the news for a wildfire that covered a half a million acres. But Facebook was lit up. There are convoys after convoys from across the country of people donating hay, donating fence supplies, donating milk replacer, coming out and donating their time to help build fence. You know, that's that's you don't, America. I don't know. That is America. That is America, and that is what America was built on. You know, you see, you see rednecks. You know, like the Cajun Navy. You know, they caught a lot of crap. But, you know, they're organized. They take care of their own and they go to communities and they take care of other people. And we need to keep building community spirit like that, not just around helping each other, but around feeding each other. Yeah, because there's going to come a time we had this conversation in church this morning about communities like the Mormons or the Amish or the Mennonites or basically where they keep their commerce inside of their own community. And I was like, okay. What's going to come the time when you piss off us farmers and ranchers bad enough that we start keeping our own commerce and food inside of our own and you guys that are stuck in the city got it. You could just go fend for yourself as far as assist, because if you keep beating us into this corner far enough, eventually we're the ones with the resources. And you're going to if you if you want to keep raising taxes, keep raising minimum wage. Yeah. Well, eventually those fast food restaurants that you depend on daily are just not going to have stuff at them anymore. And then you're going to you're going to get pissed and wonder why. Well, it's because you didn't take the burden on yourself. And that time's coming, man. And I think we're a lot closer to it than most people realize. The volatility of the water, the waves are starting to rise and get a little bit higher. and We're starting to get white caps on a few of them. And and then in a little bit, your little John boat that you're riding in is going to capsize. You're going to be sunk, you know. The rest of us that at least have food to eat, even if we can't take it to the sale barn, we're the going to survive this this storm. Yeah, you know, you got to know how to feed yourself, and you know, after a year of COVID, because like right now we're just right at a year of this, you know, two weeks to flatten the curve, I suppose. Yeah. Uh, and I, I don't know when exactly we'll air this, but it, it may be another month, month and a half. What I'm getting at is, you know, it, if COVID and the supply chain disruptions of the last year aren't showing people what's wrong with the food system, what's wrong with the centralization, what's wrong with the, you know, the transportation and the energy use of the current food system. I don't know what will. There's a lot of people, a lot of people in the cities that woke up and changed and quit their desk jobs and moved to rural America to, to start figuring out ways to be productive in a different environment. And I applaud them. And our, our small communities have welcomed them with open arms, even though you know, they show up in their their uh, Land Rover and their uh, earth, wind and fire pants and fake leather boots. And we're like, hey, OK, so welcome to the city or the town, you know, <laughs> <laughs> you know, you just do your best to welcome them because they bless their hearts. There's still people too, and they want to know. And if they were brave enough to, to leave their 401ks in the big city to come out here and go, I want to make a difference. And gosh, dang it. I'm going to figure out a way to incorporate you into that picture. And if they've got a willing heart and willing hands, there's a place for them in rural America, but there's a lot of them that are getting really scared about staying in that big city. And a lot of them, I mean, you go spend any time in Wichita or Kansas city and they just, that you can see it in their eyes. They are scared shitless. No, no, I don't want to go spend any time in Wichita or Kansas city. I like spending my time out here with my cows. Yeah. (laughs) I do too, man. I don't like leaving the farm. I love it. I'm just glad my pig hasn't come back in the room since then. So, Matt, what are we leaving on the table? Anything Anything left you want to cover today? Well, uh, 
my message to a lot of my viewers and, and population on Facebook is uh, basically employing our, ourselves to, to start putting the burden of consuming versus production of existing on this planet is number one, we can't continue to exist under this paradigm of complete abundance because that's not the way nature works. We have to start figuring out ways. We can't just continually pour all of these silver bullets on the soil and expect just endless amounts of productivity. We have to start figuring out ways uh, for us as consumers to put our bodies through, you know, it is not fun to fast. It is not fun to feel hungry and force yourself not to eat. But I'll tell you what, I have been at my absolute pinnacle best feeling when I come off of a five-day fast or a three-day fast, and I've completely re-overhauled my microbiome, my blood sugar's regulated, my testosterone is back to where it should be. I feel great after denying myself that that nutritional pleasure for that long and then when i do eat and i re-inoculate myself with food again i'm i'm refocused on what i need to be eating and, and consuming and it took me two years to be able to fast for that long i had to start off with doing one days about every two three weeks you know and then i started putting the right stuff in my body my family was doing the same we got to take conscious measures to take our control take the control of our health back into our own hands and start putting it, quit putting it in the hands of the people that just want to make money off of those resources. They want to make money off of our health and they're really freaking good at it. If we don't think about it, that's what's going to happen to all of us. So my biggest thing is for your listeners and my listeners, we all have to work together to put the control of our health back into our own hands. And it takes hard work. It takes planning. It takes self-discipline. Uh, you take out the role of convenience. It's inconvenient. It's all the dirty, nasty things that nobody wants to deal with. But you know what? If you're going to live a long, prosperous life, those are the things you're going to have to deal with. And the name of the game is longevity. So that's that's my closing arguments. <laughs> <laughs> that's perfect. That's perfect. Well, Matt, it's been, a, it's been a really enjoyable afternoon, and I appreciate you joining me here today. So, Brian, thanks, man. Always enjoy it. Thanks again, Matt, and thanks, listeners, for all your feedback. Please leave us a review on Apple Podcast, and don't forget to subscribe on your favorite podcast app or listen on Spotify. Help us spread the word by sharing us with your friends, and come check out the Ranching Reboot Paddock on Facebook. Until next time, Red Hills Rancher, out. <laughs>